Well, if you haven't been with us, we are in a series that's studying the New Testament letter called Hebrews. And uh, you can see the banners up here. It's a study in Hebrews. We're calling it the supremacy of Jesus. Now, we're not going through every chapter verse by verse like we often do. What we're doing is we're looking for 13 weeks at all the different passages that hold up the supremacy, the greatness of Jesus. And uh, we're we're preparing ourselves not only for Easter, but also, uh, again, for uh, this coming year as we think about all the things. Here's the main thing about Jesus. Once you and I begin to realize how great he is, it changes our lives. But I know about you, but I've attended church for many, many years, and the greatness of Jesus didn't always capture me. Sometimes I become dull to it. So here's what I want to ask a question just for starters, because Hebrews, we've been saying this. Here's the honest truth. Hebrews is more tricky to understand than some New Testament letters because it's written originally to some people that had a lot of Jewish background, and they'd come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, and it was costing them. Their families didn't like that decision. The people in their communities didn't like that decision. And so now, as they were up against it, they were beginning to look back to the old days and wonder if it might not be easier just to go back to the old days that were more familiar. So the writer of Hebrews is saying over and over again, don't do that. Don't turn your back on Jesus as Messiah. Do you realize who he is? If you realize who he is, you'll hold firm, you'll stand firm. You won't turn back to that because you'll realize that would be a, a big mistake. Now, today, he's going to continue this whole talk about priest. And um, I guess part of what I want to ask you is this. When you think about approaching God, what goes through your mind? I mean, how is it possible to approach a majestic, perfect, holy God when we're people like you and me? Do we just waltz in? Do we whittle them down to a reasonable size so that we can feel more comfortable with our definition of God, even though that's not who he is? I mean, how do we draw near to God? By the time I was 15 years old, friends, I had enough empirical evidence for my own life. Forget other people that God was right when he called me a sinner. I saw things that were contradictory in my life that were not going to be solved by New Year's resolutions or trying harder. I knew that there, I had no right to approach a holy God in my own righteousness. Oh my goodness, I was struck with that. Now some of you, you may say, oh, well, I'm a really good person. I'm sorry you had that experience, Jeff. Maybe you're being a little hard on yourself. Friends, I wasn't trying to be hard on myself. No one was trying to get me to believe that. God showed me that in technicolor. Now, so what I want to say is I realized, oh my goodness, how do I approach God? And so this passage we're going to talk about today has a lot to do with how do we draw near to God? Is it possible? Because I don't know about you, but I wanted to get reconnected with God somehow. I didn't always care about him. There were times I would go back and forth. But how do you? So if you're following along in the notes, here it is. To come to God and draw near to him, we need a priest. To come to God and draw near to him, we need a priest. Some of you are going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Steve just tell us last week we don't need a priest anymore? Didn't he just tell us that that's like passe? Well, friends, 
actually, that's not quite what Steve said. He said, we need a certain kind of priest. And what I want you to see today is that God will not let this idea of priest go away. Now, I don't know where you start with this. I know that probably at least 30 to 40% of people in this church are, come from a former Catholic background. So you're used to this priest kind of talk maybe more than some people. I didn't grow up with that. I, I used the word pastor more than priest, but again, the idea of priest, I've kind of resisted that almost my whole life. I've just thought that's the kind of, what? That's, you know, and so where you and I start, we need to know this. Here's what I saw in the passage we're going to look at today in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 shows us that God has not gotten rid of the idea of priest at all. In fact, if you're following along in the notes, Hebrews 7 shows us why Jesus is the better priest for us. So in order for us to get this to the place where it has anything to do with our everyday life. And I hope you're going to see that today. We need to define what a priest is, and we need to see that in this passage, the writer of Hebrews says, look, 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 those of you that grew up with a Jewish background, you know you had a priest, a high priest, a whole priestly system. And so you're right now, you're thinking, maybe I'll just go back to that, because I at least got that drilled down when I was younger. But he's saying, no, 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 you need to know, God never got rid of that idea of priesthood, he improved it. And that actually what was going on in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing, it was a looking ahead to something better. So understand, you got to decide which priesthood, which priest are you going to trust in? And we're going to see that Jesus is a better priest. He's the, in fact, he's the only priest we need. And that as we understand what a priest is, I think it'll help us. So that's where we're going today. So would you mind if we pray? Because I don't know about you, but I need prayer just to talk about these kind of complex things. Lord, thank you so much that you want to teach us how we can draw near to you. That you're a God that says, come to me. That you're a God who pursues us. You're not a God who pushes us away. You're a God that wants to make a way. So I ask, Lord, that the hope of that would come through today as we look at this passage and that many people will either trust in you in a fresh way for you to be our priest or for the first time. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so I said to you earlier um, that we're going to look at this passage in Hebrews 7. If you haven't already turned there, can I invite you to do that? I forgot to ask you to do that. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we say this all the time, we'd love it if you follow along. And if you want to follow along in the black Bibles there in the seat rack near you, if you pull that out, it's on page 841. Now, if you're getting used to your Bibles, it's near the back. In the last 50 or 60 pages of your Bibles, you'll find Hebrews, um, and you can turn to chapter 7. So, here's what I want you to see. In this passage, he's going to mention some weird names. He's going to mention a guy named Melchizedek. In fact, that's such a fun name. Let's just say it together. Melchizedek, okay? And again, so if someone asks you what you learned today, later, say, well, I don't remember everything, but I learned about a guy named Melchizedek, okay? Steve said last week that I'm going to answer every question about Melchizedek. I think I saw a tongue-in-cheek when he said that. I hope he did, because there's no way I can say everything about that today, but we're going to learn about him. We're going to learn about uh, Aaron and some of these different people. Now, you may never have heard of these names before, but they mean something. And I hope we can see what they mean, and it'll make sense. So, here's what happens. I want to um, ask you, first of all, to consider with me 
the definition of priest, okay? So if you're following along, a priest is a mediator, an intercessor, a go-between people and God. A priest, as Steve showed us last week, is someone who represents you or me before another. So uh, when the high priest would go before God, he was representing the people of Israel. He wasn't just representing himself. And when you and I think about mediator, intercessor, th those, that, that kind of words like priest, it doesn't help us very much because most of us say, you know, we're not a very religious society in the United States anymore. We don't talk about that. In ancient days, everybody wanted a priest. Nowadays, most people don't think like that. More and more irreligious thinking. So how do we get a hold of this? Well, it may help to understand that the word also means advocate. And some of you know that in our culture nowadays, the people that often serve as advocates are attorneys or lawyers when you go into a court of law. In other words, this word can also have a legal meaning to it. That means someone who represents you before another. Therefore, if you have a good attorney representing you, what they say is you. And if they do well, you do well. If they don't do well, you don't do well. And the idea here is what kind of priest you have determines what kind of access you and I have to God. How do we draw near to God? How do we have access? So Steve showed us last week that part of this whole idea of priest is it means now access to God. Now think about this. If you study the Jewish Old Testament, you study that and you see what happened to the Jewish people, they could never get completely close to God. There always was a distance. There was a certain approach. The way the tabernacle was set up, the way the temple was set up, there was only one person, and that only once a year, that could go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. And even then, he better be prepared because he might die in the presence of God. So again, you think about this idea that we have of God, that we have just whittled him down to, well, I think God's like this. I'll tell you what, has anybody ever stood in front of the Grand Canyon? It'll take your breath away. And that's a tiny little thing that's been created. Can you imagine standing before the awesome God? Every person in the Bible that stood before God hit the deck and their knees knocked. And they weren't, God wasn't even trying to make them do that. He was just being himself. Friends, if you and I were in the uneclipsed presence of God, all kinds of boasting, all kinds of high opinions of our own morality would go out the window. Because we would just see ourselves and go, wow, we would be so aware of how great he is and how different we are from that. And so the people of Israel understood this and they knew that you couldn't just approach God. So they needed a priest, okay? They needed an advocate. They needed a mediator. They needed a go-between. Where does that come from? Intercede is the word, Latin word. So inter means between. Seed means to go. So literally an intercessor is one who goes between, on behalf, that mediates, that actually pleads for, that actually makes a case for you and me before someone else in order to reconcile, in order to bring near, in order to make right with. So if what I'm about to do is read verse 11 in chapter 7, okay? I am actually going to read the Bible today. And uh, look at the very first sentence, chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, 
Why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this the first few times this last week, I just went, that is a mouthful. But what he's saying here is this. If in the Old Testament plan, if in the first covenant that God made with the people of Israel, that would have produced perfection, why was it necessary for there to be another kind of priesthood later? In other words, it didn't do the job. It didn't bring about perfection. Now, when you and I hear perfection, we often think without flaws. And it certainly can mean that at times, but this word here tends to mean something more like that it has to do with arriving at a desired end or reaching a certain goal. So what was God's goal for us? God's goal for us is to be near him, to be close to him. Do you remember what happened in the very beginning, the opening pages of the Bible? In Genesis, when God created people, they were close to him. They were near to him. Adam and Eve, it says, walked with God in the cool of the day. It's a poetic way of saying they had a, a kind of fellowship that was perfect. It was what God desired. It was what God had created them to be. But sin came into the world by chapter 3. And Isaiah 59 says that our sin separates us from God. It puts a distance between us and God. Our sin does. Not God just distancing himself from us. Our sin does that. And I don't know about you, but you notice that Adam and Eve, even when they had an opportunity to be near God after that, were so ashamed and so guilt-ridden that they didn't want to be near God. They hid. And so God has been looking for ways ever since then to restore this perfection, this desired end. And so since, again, he gave that priesthood thing and it didn't accomplish that, it's necessary for another priesthood. So what we're going to do is I'm going to show you two priestly lines. That's what he does in this argument, the writer from Hebrews. Okay? So notice, if you're following along, there's two priestly lines. One from the order of Aaron and the other from the order of Melchizedek. Would you mind saying Melchizedek with me again? Melchizedek. Okay? Now, when it says from the order of Aaron, you'll notice there in verse 11 that it also uses a, a phrase like this, Levitical priesthood. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Bible. It's really okay. The great founder, the, the great person that every Jewish person looked to was Abraham. Incidentally, that's who the Muslims also look to. But I'm saying is the Jewish people, Abraham was their father. So Abraham had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 sons. And one of those 12 sons, the great-grandson of Abraham, was Levi. And under Levi, he would eventually also have people in his family tree. One of those people would be Aaron and Moses. Aaron would be set aside to be the priestly family. So from that point on, everybody related to Aaron came through the tribe of Levi would be a priest. If you weren't born in that family, there was no way you could be a priest. It didn't matter how much you wanted to be a priest. Steve talked about this last week. You had to be called by God. And in the Old Testament law, the people that were called by God to be priests were those born in the Levitical line, who also, okay, the younger member of that line was Aaron, and so it was either Aaron or Levitical priesthood means the same thing. Now, it either means from the order of Aaron or the order of Melchizedek. So he starts saying this. Okay, so... You grew up, he's saying to these people, you grew up with the 
Levitical priesthood where Aaron was the first of those priests. That's what you grew up with. That's what you're used to. That's what you're thinking about going back to right now. And I want to talk to you about both of those. And then he mentions, but there's also someone from the order of Melchizedek. Now, where in the world does this happen? Okay, let me just tell you this. If you ever want to read about Melchizedek, there's three places that you can primarily read about it. And one of them is Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And I'm going to read chapter 7 here in Hebrews in just a minute because it capsulizes that event back in Genesis. The other place that you hear about Melchizedek in the Old Testament, the only other place is in Psalm 110. And I'm going to come back to that as well. But this was a messianic psalm that prophesied the coming of the Messiah. Every Jewish boy and girl knew that Psalm 10 was a messianic psalm. So what the writer of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to say, let me show you how the old priesthood that you're thinking about going back to broke down. And let me show you how Jesus fulfilled a better priesthood through a guy named Melchizedek, okay? So here we go. Let me just read this to you. Verses 11, I'll, I'll, I'll go further with verse 12 through 18. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Because the law said that there had to be someone from the Levitical line or the line of Aaron. So, he of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. He's talking about Jesus now. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. It is clear that our Lord descended from the tribe of Judah. Remember, uh, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. One of the other 12 sons was Judah. So Judah and Levi were some of those 12 sons. So now he's saying, look, Jesus, when he was born to Mary and Joseph, he came from Judah, not Levi, but I'm telling you he's a priest. So where am I getting this kind of logic? Where am I getting this kind of reasoning is what he's saying. So then he says, verse 14, excuse me, verse 15, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Do some of your Bibles have that standing out a little bit, set apart? That is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. Remember I told you there were two places in the Old Testament Melchizedek is mentioned. That's the second one. So he says, okay, Melchizedek wasn't necessarily from the tribe of Levi or Aaron either. In fact, he was before those guys. So... He's saying that. Now he says in verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Now, let me just tell you, let's talk about Melchizedek for just a little bit. Thank you for your patience. Back to chapter 7, verse 1. Just turn back there. This Melchizedek was a king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. Genesis 14 says this, by the way. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. He tithed to this priest. First, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. I don't remember a lot from my Hebrew classes, but I do remember the word Zedek or Zedekah means righteousness. And I also remember that the word Melech means king. So Mel, you know, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, okay? So he's saying that right here. And then he says this. He says, 
And also, king of Salem means king of peace. Now, here's the key verse I want you to see in here. Verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he, Melchizedek, remains a priest forever. Here's the interesting thing. He says, if you go back and read Genesis 14, there's no indication of his ancestry. There's no indication of his parents, which, by the way, for a Jewish person, this was everything. That's why there's so many genealogies in the Old Testament. So he comes on the scene. No one knows where he came from, and no one knows where he went. Wow, that is weird, isn't it? So Melchizedek is this priest who Abraham meets, who is so impressive that Abraham actually gives offerings to him. And he actually blesses. That was one of the responsibilities of the priest. He blesses Abraham. Now, follow the argument if you go further. Verse 4. So it says this. Um, Sorry, lost my place. So just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had, promise, who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek because who is greater, friends? Melchizedek. So go on. It says this in verse um, 8. In one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case by him who is declared to be living. In other words, by one it was collected by the priest of Aaron's line and the other by Melchizedek. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. He, hadn't, he wasn't going to be born for three or four more generations. Now, this can be really confusing, I know. So follow me. What he's saying is this is that way, way back, when God made the Old Testament law and he decided that every priest that would help you approach God would come from the line of Aaron and Levi. That law that he set up, the Old Testament ceremonial law. Even before that, there was a priest named Melchizedek. And also, after the law was established in the book of Psalms, he made a promise, a prophecy, that there would one day be another priest. And he would come from the order of Melchizedek. In what sense? That he would live forever. So now look at how he contrasts these two priestly lines, okay? He says, if you're thinking about going back to the old way, here you go. Notice that one is temporary and set aside, and one is permanent. One is temporary and set aside. In other words, do you realize that the way you're thinking about going back to, God's already given up on that? Because he's fulfilled it in Jesus, a better, a more permanent, a lasting priesthood. In other words, the one you want to go back to, it's passing away. It was just for a while. It was meant to be a picture of what was going to be better in the future. Don't go back to the shadow. Go for the real thing. And he said, that, that, that priesthood. Now, when it says it's set aside, it doesn't mean that it was meaningless. It just means that God had something better. So, he says, the priesthood that God's established now, because it's forever, is permanent. Now, it, let me read these verses, 18 and 19, okay? 
It says, so the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So then he drops down, we drop down to verse 23 and 24, and by the way, that's in the message notes. I put it there in the New Living Translation, so would you read it with me? There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office, but because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever, okay? So has anybody ever been to a church where they used to have the pictures of all the pastors? Maybe it's a 100-year-old church and they have the pictures of every pastor that's ever served. You ever looked at that? You know what all those pictures have in common? Those people are either dead or they will be dead. That means that no matter how much you say, oh, I really like that one. That was a really good, that was a bad one. No matter what's going on, you realize that no matter how great they were as a priest or a pastor, they're going to die. They can't come through for you like someone who lives forever. And they may even get to know your story. They may get to know you. And you go, wow, that pastor left or that pastor died. Now I've got to start all over again with a new pastor or priest. See, the point is, is that these people who represented them, even no matter how personal it got, they couldn't last. Jesus could. Another thing he says with a contrast, one, that, one is based on ancestry, one is based on an oath. So he says, okay, the first one is based on whether or not you belong to Levi or Aaron, right? He says, that's true. But he says, one is based on an oath, and that's where it starts in verse 20. And this one was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but this priest became but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Here's Psalm 110 verse 4 again. He comes back and he says, look, when God, who doesn't have to even make an oath because his word's good, makes an oath, that's like double exclamation mark of saying this will automatically happen. There's no way it couldn't happen. He will become a priest forever. And then it says, verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So now God is making a different agreement, a different way of us approaching him than we did in the Old Testament where you had to bring animal sacrifices and the shedding of blood of an innocent third party to come near to God. Now he says, those priests, every time they offered that sacrifice, first had to offer a sacrifice for themselves, and then they had to offer a sacrifice for you, for you to even get limited access to God. So just know that God says, no, I promise you that I'm going to bring a different priest about where that old system's going to go away, and Jesus is that priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's the last thing. So notice that one is weak and useless, and one truly meets our need. One is weak and useless, and one truly meets our need. Would you read verse 25 with me in that second gray box, please, out loud? Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. So, it says, one is weak and useless, one truly meets our need. Now, it doesn't mean one is weak and meaningless. It means one is weak and useless to bring about what? The desired end. No matter how much you go 
to, to a Jewish synagogue. I mean, this is the Jewish temple or, or tabernacle. The synagogue, there's no longer animal sacrifice anymore. But no matter how many times you would sacrifice an animal for your own sins, it never completely took care of your problem. It was weak and useless in many ways, but it was a foreshadowing of something that wouldn't be weak and useless. Because now, Jesus, Jesus has made it possible. Look at verse 26 through 27 and 28. It says, Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. How many of us have a problem with the whole priest thing because we've seen somebody who wasn't pure, who wasn't, you know, who, who, who it was two different people going on and there was this falsehood. He's saying Jesus isn't like that. He's not some phony. You're not going to find out later that there was a whole bunch of scamming going on with him. He's not like that. Verse 27, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered what, friends? Himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which comes after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So now let me just talk to you in closing minutes about how this relates to our life. Thanks for letting me set this up. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. Look, Jesus is greater than Aaron. He's greater than that system you're thinking about going back to that makes you feel religious. Jesus offers something better. In this covenant, he offers a relationship. And he also offers you the hope of perfection. Anybody long to be perfected? Anybody long to be completed? Anybody long to stop doing some of the things you do? Anybody longing for that day? Jesus is your hope. And here's what it says. If you're following along, Aaron couldn't remove sin or clear consciences. Aaron couldn't remove sin or clear consciences. If you read Hebrews 9.9 or Hebrews 10.11, you can do that on your own, or even Hebrews 10.3. You know what Hebrews 10.3 says? Actually, when these people were going through this sacrificial system with Aaron or Levi, every time they did it, it didn't take away their sin. It reminded them of how sinful they were. They were going... I'm a wreck. So instead of leaving church feeling better, they go, I'm messed up. That's not really a happy way to live, is it? And that means that the, even though they said, okay, I know I did what God wanted me to do, but I wonder if I'm okay with him. There was still this unclean, unclear conscience. Anybody relate to this? Even as a Christian, you relate to this at all? So what Aaron could do, all he could do was cover sin. He could not remove it. That means that it was covered for a year or covered for one sacrifice, but the problem kept coming and also the pain of it in our hearts kept coming. So but here, notice what Jesus did. Jesus saves completely all who come to God through him. Jesus saves completely all who come to God through him. If you, if, I, if you were to say, Jeff, like, what do you want me to do with a message like this? I know, I've been struggling with that myself. If you were just to meditate on that second gray box the rest of this week and just let it soak into you and ask yourself if you really believe it, you 
would be encouraged. Here's what it says. He is able to save how much, friends? Completely. Some of your translations say once and forever. What it means is this. How many of us know that in one sense we are saved? It's a done deal. But how many of us also know that while we've been saved, God's still got a lot of saving to do for the work to be completed? Does anybody here know that the Bible talks about this all the time? We have been saved when you trust in Christ. We are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. In other words, it's this mystery. And guess what? Jesus will do it all. Now, if that doesn't make you sing, that means he's got it covered. That means past, present, and future sin. If you care at all about God and want to be close to him, then you know that you need a priest who can do that. I've been, friends, I've been walking with Jesus for over 35 years. This last week, I had a chance to see yet again, there is still some stuff in me that is not fully saved. And it kills me. It makes it hard to sleep at night. So where do I go? To the priest. To the one who is able to save completely. He promised. It's an oath. He will not break his word. And all who trust in him will experience this, friends. Will it feel perfect all the time? No, but God will finish what he started. And for those who really have been born again by trusting in him, friends, you will find yourself hungering for this. You will find yourself. Otherwise, if you say, oh, no big deal, then friends, you got to ask yourself if God's ever really gotten into your heart. Because when Jesus gets a hold of you, oh my goodness, that's what begins to happen. It doesn't mean that you don't sometimes still do stuff really foolishly, carelessly, dumb. But after a while, now you can't sin the same way. You can't do that same thing without bothering you. I know I'm talking a lot. Here we go. Let me just say this. Some of you remember this. You remember this hymn. And this hymn, John Holland told me, has been part of Cherry Hills for years. To God be the glory. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then it goes on and says, O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Let me ask you. He says, come. Are you coming to God through Jesus the Son? That means when you bow your head. And the evil one goes, you can't pray. Remember what you did last night? You can't pray. Remember what you've been doing this week? You go, you know what? You're right. But I have an advocate. He stands before God, and I'm going to come through him and his merits, not my own. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't bother me what you're bringing up, but it does mean that that is not going to keep me from him because it's what Jesus has done, not me. See, again, I don't know if you know this. If you've ever seen a picture of a high priest, we actually thought about trying to get this. A high priest, when he stood before God, I don't know if you've ever read this, the clothing that was described. He was radiant. It was gold. It was all these precious stones on his breastplate and on his turban. 
And on each one of those stones and on his shoulder bracings were the names of the tribes of Israel. And when the high priest went before God, he was beautiful before God. And God saw him representing the people. Friends, when Jesus becomes our priest, he doesn't just pardon us, he makes us beautiful. He actually gives us a beauty because we are in our priest. We are in him. And therefore, he sees Jesus. He sees the beauty. And one more thing I just want to tell you. A guy named Tim Keller said this. I thought it was really good. He said, I used to not like that idea of all of Jesus interceding or advocating for me because here's what I picture. I picture that he'd go in there and he'd say, God, as if God was against us, but God, I'm begging for mercy for my client. He goes, man, I, you know, I thought, that means he's already lost the case if he's got to beg for mercy. Any attorney knows that. They throw themselves on the mercy of the court. But he says, that's not what Jesus says. He says, Father, because Jeff has trusted in me, I'm asking for justice. I'm not asking for mercy. I'm asking for justice based on what I have done. I have justified him because I have paid every penalty for his sin. I did it. Therefore, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful. It's true, but that's not what it says. He is faithful and what? Just to forgive our sins. Not because we're so great, but because he justified us by what he did. So if you think you're a Christian based on what you've done, give it up. You can only be a Christian because your priest has totally taken care of things and he's asking the Father for justice, not just mercy. So this last thing is this. He offered himself and lives to intercede for us. He offered himself and always lives to intercede for us. Those of you that have a faraway, distant idea of God, can I just ask you a question? What's it going to take for God to convince that he loves you and he wants you to be close to him? Would it convince you enough if his own son gave himself up for you? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus says, I'm not just going to offer sins that might cover for a while. I'm going to take care of the whole deal. Not just for Jeff, but the whole world. And he offered himself. He didn't just talk. He laid down his life. Have you ever been with somebody? They didn't talk a lot. They just did it. Jesus offered himself, and now the Bible says, because of his indestructible life, because the grave could not hold him, he is a priest forever. And that means that he always lives. Why does Jesus live now? What's he doing at the right hand of God? He is interceding for you. He is advocating for you. He is mediating for you. He is saying, God, based on what I have done, please give him not just pardon give him freedom to come into your presence does anybody need to hear this today you know i told you this has been quite a week for me and god reminded me of this story in 1964 alan redpath former pastor of moody church in chicago suffered a near fatal stroke and sank into the depths of despondency he wrote later of having terribly wicked thoughts this guy was a great pastor friend at one point, he prayed, Oh, Lord, deliver me from this attack, the attack of, this de- of the devil. Take me right home. And it was then that he sensed the Lord saying, It is I, your Savior, who brought this experience into your life to show you 
that this is the kind of person with all your sinful thoughts and temptations which you thought were things of the past that you will always be except for my grace. When you and I still see vestiges of the old life, instead of just giving up, we need to say, God, you're reminding me again how much I need you to be my priest. Not just when I gave my life to you as a little kid or back years ago. I need you every moment of every day to be my priest. I don't want to do a moment without you being my priest. And I want my life to be in you so that as you stand before God, I can know an interaction with you, a freedom, a closeness, an access that was never imaginable before. So I could read a lot of scriptures to you right now, and I had that plan, but let's just... Let's just look at this last line of the notes. If Jesus is supreme, will I trust Jesus to be my priest now and forever? Will I trust Jesus to be my priest now and forever? Is there anybody here that you have not appreciated Jesus and you have not been trusting him? You've been trusting either in your own righteousness or you've been trusting in something else. Will you trust Jesus to be your priest, your advocate, your mediator, your intercessor, your go-between? Because he can bring you close to God. And on this side of heaven, we will not experience it perfectly, friends. But even now, we can have a foretaste of his presence, can't we? And someday, someday, there will be no more sin, no more crying, no more death, no more struggle. And we look forward to that day. But the reason we can look forward to it is because it has been guaranteed for all who trust in Jesus and not themselves. So we're going to sing the song forever. Just relish the fact that because he is a forever priest, our forever priest, we can worship him now.